we've been looking at what what it is to serve as Christians and as a church. Um, what is Christian ministry? What is the foundation of it? What is its purpose? Um, just thinking about the last couple times that we've gotten together, we've really been laying a foundation for what it is or why we serve, why we give of ourselves in ministry as individuals and as a church. And here's what I want us to sort of think about as we look backwards, and that's a Christian has been miraculously and divinely recreated in Christ for the purposes of Christ. So a Christian isn't just someone who's going to heaven because they trusted in Jesus or believed on Jesus, but a Christian has been divinely and miraculously recreated in Christ for the purposes of Christ in this life and the life to come. Um, we talked a lot last time we were together about being created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Created in, we have been those who are in Christ, the church, created in Christ for good works. Created in Christ. Now, that's not created in the womb. This isn't talking about being created as individuals. All people have been created by God, but the church has been created in Christ. Um, that's hinting at the new birth, right? That's hinting at being born again, um, being born a child of God, John 1, John 3. Or we might use from Titus 3, which was another passage we looked at last week, to be regenerated, regenerated, made New. We also looked at the idea of being a new creation in Christ. Um, I, we really hammered hard on this verse two weeks ago when we were together. Let me just read it. You don't have to turn there. Um, but this verse from Titus sums it up really well what Christianity is, what it is to be a Christian. It's in Titus 2. It says this, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. There's so much in that verse. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's Titus 2, verse 14. I think it defines the work of Christ the will of God, the point of the church, and what is taking place for all eternity in Christ very, very well. But notice 
that these people are zealous for good works. We also talked about, so that's created in Christ. We also talked about being made alive, being made alive in Christ Jesus. Notice, notice the similarity. Created in Christ, made alive, or for good works, made alive in Christ Jesus. Um, you go and look at Ephesians 2. It says we're dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Was it last time we were together? We talked about bad tree and good tree. I think it was. That before we're in Christ, created in Christ, or made alive in Christ, we're bad trees. And Jesus makes it very clear what kind of fruit do bad trees make. Bad fruit. And so what he's doing in redemption is taking bad trees that make bad fruit and making them good trees, which make good fruit. Um, made alive to God in Jesus Christ for works of righteousness or for good works. Uh, this is what God is doing. God, God isn't just saving people from hell, but he's making a people to be his and to do his will, which is then gathering in more people into his kingdom. So, just because we have to put this thought in there, how does one become in Christ? Because we're created in Christ, made alive in Christ. How are we to become in Christ? Faith, united to Christ or placed in Christ by faith. In Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified. Let me read it because I'm about to add something that doesn't belong there. I've been crucified um, with Christ. That's probably the same preposition in the Greek, in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that verse is very telling because two things are happening. We live by faith in Christ. But at the same time, Christ lives in us. I live by faith, or I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I live by I who now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by faith. And the Son of God. What can we expect of that sort of life? Christ living in you and you living by faith in Christ. Christ likeness. Christ likeness. This is probably the most depleted teaching in American Christianity. Christianity. 
the divine reality of the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in a person. And that faith in the person who's working in them, the faith in the in Christ, it is doing something. It's miraculous and divine. It is regenerating. It is reworking. It is a new creation. It's, I'm not old. That self has died, and I'm now new. And with Christ in me and my faith in Christ, I'm pursuing Christ-likeness. It's inevitable. Christ-likeness, the pursuit of holiness is inevitable for a Christian. What does Christ-likeness look like? Here's just four things. Number one, the Son of Man came to serve and not be served. Christ-likeness. The Son of Man came to serve and not be served. Number two, love one another as I have loved you. Number three, Luke 9, 23. If anyone is to come and come after me and be like me, he must take up his cross, deny himself daily, and follow me. Philippians 2, 3. Let each one of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. What does good works look like? It looks like um, service, love, selflessness, or sacrifice. Now here's the key I want us to think about tonight. A Christian will be compelled to these things internally. A Christian will be compelled to good works. To these, uh, this idea of service, love, and sacrifice. It's unavoidable. Because that's the point of Christ in you. So, w- there are three passages. I don't know how far we'll go tonight. We might just touch on this first one. Um, to help us understand this compulsion... And what it looks like uh, to love and serve others. So what we're introducing tonight is what we call mercy ministries. Okay, mercy ministries. Um, Sort of separated from mission or um, mission-minded ministry. But mercy ministry, and here are the examples that I would like to walk through, whether it be tonight or tonight and next week. The Good Samaritan. Right? There's no, uh, well, just, yeah, the Good Samaritan. Paul, in his letter to, the, uh, to Corinth, about them giving a tithe to the poor saints of Jerusalem. And then finally, James's uh, letter speaking about faith without works is dead. And the illustration that he uses there. So let's just start with the Good Samaritan and think about that for a second. And see um, what this looks like. A Christian will be compelled to do good works. To show love, sacrifice, um, and service to others. Because of this miraculous work of God within them. 
but we have to kind of here's here's a asterisk for you. The level of Christ likeness, um, the level of what this looks like in Christians varies. Okay, not all are the same. As you think about the parable of the good soil, and the good soil produced plants that had a harvest of 40, 60, and 100. So not all Christians produce or do good works at the same level, or even love and service and sacrifice at the same level. What's the common denominator, though? Fruit, a harvest. That there is an expression of love, sacrifice, and service. That there are good fruit of good works coming from them. Um, but it might just vary. And the major factor of that variation is spiritual maturity. Um, which also, before that, is God's grace. Because if you produce 40, it's by the grace of God. If you produce 100, it's by the grace of God. Any spiritual maturity you have is by the grace of God. Um, I had a couple verses to help us to understand the, 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 the variation of spiritual maturity. We won't go there. But know that the two factors for spiritual maturity are knowledge and experience. Knowledge and experience. If you go, and when I say experience, imagine the woman who is um, weeping at Jesus' feet. Okay? And he tells the parable about the two people who had debts, and one was forgiven much, and the other was forgiven little. And one that the one who was forgiven much loved more than the one who was forgiven little. Well, that's that's the, the difference in experience, right? Now there is knowledge and experience very much go together because when you experience, you 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 gain knowledge, but you also have to understand that from the other pers- from the other side, the more you know, even if you've experienced a certain amount, but the more you know about what there is to experience, the more you know about God and His mercy, you're actually experiencing it more. And so, like I said, they're kind of hard to, kind of hard to split. But if you want to see that a little bit better, First Corinthians chapter one gives this perfect testimony about how Paul has seen the experience of the Colossians, and in in the gospel, but then how he prays and that there's fruit out of it. But then he prays that they will increase in the knowledge and the wisdom of God, so that they might have more fruit. And do more good works. Colossians 1 is uh, verse 3 through 14 is where you can find that. If you just think about knowledge experience and you read through that passage, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And the whole outcome that Paul's praying for is that they will increase into good works for the glory of God. So people can be on different levels. God's grace and our responsibility. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Isn't that such an interesting verse? God's grace and our responsibility. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's your responsibility. 
God's grace. For it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Okay, the Good Samaritan. Um, Luke chapter... Ten, verse twenty-five. Luke ten, twenty-five. And yeah, it's this is um, the introduction leading into it verse 25 through 28 was very necessary and behold a lawyer said a, a lawyer stood up so someone who knows the law a lawyer stood up to put him to the test that would be to put Jesus to the test saying teacher what shall I do to inherit inherit eternal life he Jesus said to him what is written in the law so he's testing the lawyer right how do you read it And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbors as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to the lawyer, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said, and that's not a good thing, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going... So here's the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite... When he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day... He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay repay you when I come back. And then, end of parable, Jesus goes back to the lawyer, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So, how does this parable start? It's born out of the two great commandments, which are foundationally about love. About love. Love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Love should be natural to us because 
were made in the image of God. Love should come natural to us. But because of our sin, because of the fall, because of our sinful nature that, that has been passed down from our first parents, now not, not only is love um, or should love be a natural thing to us, but now it is a command. And the only time things are commanded is when they won't be done. Does that make sense? There would be no reason for God to command us to love him or love others if we did it. There would be no need for speed signs if we all drove the right speed. There would be no need for commands or laws if we weren't broken by nature. And that's how we have to think about this. I'm hinting at the bad tree kind of thing. A bad tree produces bad fruit. So the guy wants to know, how do I inherit inherit eternal life? How can I please God? And Jesus says, you must love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the, the two great commandments. And here's the thing. We have to understand in ourselves we break these commandments. Absolutely. We break these commandments. So the guy wants to know, well, okay, can we narrow it down a little bit? Like who actually do I need to love? Just give me an idea. Who's my neighbor? That's what he asked. Desiring to justify himself. So he's saying, if you just tell me who it is, then I'll go and do that. Right? That's that's what he wants to know. Um, so it begins with uh, it, it begins with n- commanded to to love God and love others. But then when we get through here, about verse, I, I'm not going to go through the whole priest and the Levite thing. We understand that we're all uh, we're all familiar with the with the parable. But what I, what I really want to focus on is the Samaritan, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, that would be the beaten man, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Does anyone else says says mercy or anything else? Not compassion, but anything else? Anybody else? Verse 33. The Samaritan had what towards does anybody else say anything different? No? Okay. So compassion. This is how I want us to define compassion. And this is basically what the Greek word is telling us. Literally, the word, I can't pronounce it, but it means to have the bowels yearn. And yes, I said bowels, your innards. Like you feel it within you. What are you feeling? Mercy. He looked upon him and felt mercy within him I did a word study of this Greek word in Matthew as a verb because it's a verb in this in this passage in Matthew as a verb 
It is only used in reference to Jesus. Only. Christ-likeness, right? That's what we're thinking about. I, maybe I, I'll just look it up. I'm just going to throw these at you real fast so you believe me. Matthew, I'm, not, Matthew 9, I'm going to say them and then just read them. Matthew 9, 36, we've already talked about this on Sunday mornings. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes this word is translated sympathy. Sympathy. Um, in 14.14, it is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know, they're like, he, he says, well, I'll just read it. He doesn't want to send them away because he, he feels for them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. It says he healed them. And then I think in another place, 15, is where um, he feeds another crowd. And 1532, I have Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. See if you can notice the pattern here. I'm just I hadn't thought about this. But in each of these instances, the person which Jesus is having compassion for has a problem. The crowd who's harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. The first crowd that he fed and he healed them, so their problems were um, physical more than likely. He he had compassion on their diseases, their possessions, whatever it was be demon possessions um and then here he has compassion on these people because they're probably weary and hungry from being with him three days without food and then let's see if see if this trend continues 1827 and out of pity for him same word pity the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt so that's the parable of the what does he call it the unforgiving servant, where the king, after the uh, the servant who has this lifelong debt, pleads with the king, forgive me, forgive me, and out of compassion, out of within him that inward mercy, he forgives him all of his debt. The last one, twenty, thirty four. Two blind men and Jesus in pity or compassion touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So yeah, all of the instances where that word is used in the verb in a in a in the verb form is either Jesus himself or portraying Jesus, as it is in the parable. And it's toward someone who has a problem, who is in need. Mercy ministry, right? That's what we're thinking about. That's how. That's what we're. That's what we're coming after. The parable of the good Samaritan. We have a man who feels sympathy and mercy within him towards someone 
who is in need. Jesus is telling this parable. Okay. Here's what I want us to understand. This is a real affection. It's not, it's not a characteristic that you can... Hmm, what would be a good opposite way for me to think about this? It's not like learning another language. Okay? You can, go and pra- you can go and practice and learn another language and get very proficient in it. it that's, that's more of a head thing. This compassion and mercy is a heart thing. It's, it, 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 yeah. You understand what I'm saying? It's an, it's an affection. Which I've said before, just like love is an affection and we should love, it's still got to be commanded because it's like our love widget is broken because of our sin nature. Our compassion widget within us is broken because of our sin nature. So we've got to understand this is why regeneration, new birth, created in Christ, made alive in Christ is so important. Because you can't just go and say, well, how does Jesus finish the parable? The guy says, Jesus says in verse 36, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Where'd that mercy come from? It came from his bowels. It came from who, how he felt when he looked at that man. So, and then Jesus turns and says to him, go and do likewise. So the question is, is, how is the way to eternal life just doing a bunch of good things for everybody no it's needing to be fixed because we're broken how does Jesus tell someone they're broken he says hey here's a story about a man who loves so great who you wouldn't think would do what what he needed to do do for someone who was hurting, and he felt this way about that person. And he went and had mercy on him. He, He showed love, sacrifice, and selflessness, and service. He took, what are the most important resources to a human being? Time and money. And he gave that to that man. He said, I'm going to wrap you with my bandages. I'm going to give you my wine. I'm going to pay for your room with my money. And I'm going to do this all on my time. Go and do likewise. This goes back to how we started this whole thing. In order to go and do as God desires, you must first be. You cannot please God by doing unless you are first 
reborn, regenerated, made alive. Which brings us back to faith. So Jesus says, go and do likewise. This guy, I don't know the outcome. He had two options. He either was like going to strap up his bootlaces and go try to be better at showing mercy to people. Or he would he thought, you know what? I'm not that. I am not that compassionate. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I must trust God. I must trust in God that he will forgive me of my failure to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus hadn't been crucified yet. There, the gospel wasn't 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3 at the time. Because he hadn't died and he hadn't been resurrected. But, he, but the right response to this parable would be, I am a sinner who falls short of the commands and glory of God. And I need God's forgiveness, as David cries out in Psalm 51. But let's say this man repented of his sin and trusted in God for his failures and his uh, to love him, love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, his neighbor and himself. How was his sins paid for? At the cross of Christ. No different than yours and I, yours and mine. So, all that to say this: it began with love as the command, and in the middle we find out. That it's more than just doing, but it's about who we are and our feeling, our affections, our sympathy, our compassion towards others. And we must understand that that only happens as we have been recreated, made alive in Christ by faith. And when we do that, we have Christ in us. That's the only way we can mimic this Samaritan. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we'll just tie it up here and call it an evening. Tie this back to where we were Sunday morning. Matthew 12. We'll turn there real fast. Matthew 12. Verse 7. If you had known what this means, quote, quoting Hosea 6.6, which is the second time Jesus has quoted it in three chapters in Matthew. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So where is that mercy found? What is God really after? 
The in, huh? Compassion? Where is it? It's in sign. In, in, yeah. Mine says, I desire compassion. Right. Potato, potato. The Levite and the priest, my guess is they were more worried about the sacrifice part. And understand, when when Jesus says sacrifice, he doesn't mean like he, God doesn't like when we sacrifice. He means the ritual. Right? I desire the internal, the truth, the internal, not what you're doing on the outside. It's been suggested that the priest couldn't help the guy because he was on his way back to Jerusalem to go do his work at the temple. And he knew that if he touched this man who looked like he was dead, he could be unclean and he wouldn't be able to do his stuff. Now, that's a little speculation, but... God wants us to feel compassion and sympathy and love in the same way Jesus feels it internally, not out of obligation. But even when we don't feel it as Christians, we should still feel obligated. It's kind of a... Right. And then we... If we don't feel the compassion, yet we do that thing which we know we should, after we do that thing, we should probably confess our sin of our lack of sympathy and ask the Lord to help us grow in our Christ-likeness and feeling compassion and being sympathetic. I've been greatly humbled by this over the last couple weeks. Charged her and her kid a couple of times with the hair on, yeah. on its back. 